Welcome to the Root Simple Podcast, where the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knutson, and me, Kelly. The topic this week is Kelly's aortic dissection and emergency open heart surgery adventure. How fun. But before we get to the discussion, I want to thank our Patreon subscribers, Dan F., Heather E., Lynn G., and supporters Michael W. and Dutch Girl. If you'd like to become a patron and make an ongoing pledge to support our podcast and blog, you can find a link in the show notes and on the right side of our blog at rootsimple.com. So, Kelly, tell us what happened the day after Thanksgiving, November 25th, 2016, around 5 p.m. Oh, God. (laughs) I want to, um, before we do that, I wanted to thank all of our Root Simple people, all um, all of our commenters and and people who sent us private emails offering me support during this time. I just wanted to say that right off the bat. I really appreciate all of your well wishes and good thoughts and prayers during what has been a a trying time. the story itself. Oh, is, and uh, Eric oh, Rochow of Garden Fork, oh, yes. of course, for, for stepping in and doing an episode of this podcast for us, which was very nice of him to do. Well, we'll talk some more about Eric at the end of the podcast. Yes, but. it's like dropping an audio casserole on our doorstep. Exactly. <laughs> it was Digital casserole. It was yes. wonderful. Yeah. Well, on Black Friday, which I think is very appropriate, um, I was having a quiet day. I think Eric and I ran some errands. In the morning, went out to lunch at an Indian buffet. <laughs> I'm never eating Indian buffet again. And um, uh, and then that afternoon, um, I, I had not been feeling well for a couple of days, um, but just with a sinus thing. I had some sort of sinus thing, and I was doing herbal steams and putting hot rags on my face. And I just decided to take it easy, and I was, I was binge-watching The Crown and applying hot rags to my face trying to get over this thing and Eric was gone and I was taking care of my mom. Yes. You, so you were on the other side of the city. I was 90, we'll be 92 this year. Yes. And I, um, needed to lock up the chickens come sundown. So it was around five uh, when the, uh, when the sky was gray and I went out there and I locked up the chickens and then, um, and I am telling this to you because you guys are my root simple friends, and it will make you laugh. Um, I needed to pee. I realized I needed to pee while I was out there doing chicken chores. And being who I am, being a great fan of outdoor peeing, also uh, being in a drought, which we were at the time. We've had a lot of rain since, but um, it was still quite droughty then. And being a gardener in Southern California, I was like, I'm going to pee in the mulch. So... Um, I squatted down and peed in our yard. And while I was squatting, I felt this terrible, stabbing, tearing pain um, in my chest, right in the middle of my sternum, and on my back, sort of in a parallel position to the front place, so like right between my shoulder blades, just sharp and short. And then... Following that, a hot sensation, like a burning sensation that ran up my carotids to my to my ears. And then it went away. And I stood up 
And I just was like, what? What the heck was that? Was that a lady heart attack? Because I know that um, women's heart attacks take uh, many different forms, uh, very different than the classic left arm pain, chest pain kind of kind of symptoms that the classic male heart attack has. But I had no reason to be having a heart attack. I do not have a history of heart problems. I have, I did not have high blood pressure. I didn't have anything that would, would predispose me to having a heart attack. But nonetheless, it was a very strange feeling and it gave me the willies. I just I, I I don't like going to the doctor. I'm about as easy to get to a doctor as it is to get a cat to a vet. I really don't like it. But something in me was like, you got to go. You got to go to the doctor. And of course, being an evening, a Friday evening, that meant going to the emergency room or because we um, belong to Kaiser Permanente, they have something called the urgent care, which is sort of like the cold flu and kid ear infection clinic, um, which is open late. And I thought I would go to one of those. The emergency room seemed very extreme, but you know, I I didn't know what to do. But what's strange is that that pain that I had went away. So I, I felt fine a minute afterwards, but I was just creeped out. And so I thought, well, I, I'm going to go anyway. And when I was trying, when I was double checking the addresses, um, it, the Kaiser webpage said if you have have chest pain, you're supposed to go to the emergency room. So I was like. Okay, I'll go to the emergency room. So I um, didn't have a car because we have just the one car that we share. And Eric had. I had it. it. I was about ten miles away at my mom's house. And in LA terms, ten miles is on a Friday afternoon is like an hour and a half away. Right. Um, and so I actually the first thing I did was I called Eric and um, just to find out where he was, make sure he wasn't just about home or something. Um, and he said no, he was still deep in Culver City. And uh, and I was totally useless because I said, oh, nothing, don't worry about it. You just have a cold, which is really was the terrible thing to say. Yeah, he, well, he thought the chest pain might be related to a developing pneumonia bronchitis, or something like that. Or bronchitis. Before. Yeah. So, you know, reasonable. But not he, reasonable. Well, don't, but if you don't, just. We'll, we'll get into it later. I said but I don't had, do that. I said I had had funny chest pain. Yeah. I mean,. You don't want to be like, oh, my God, you're dying. You know, you want to say reassuring things like, um, you know, it's probably just bronchitis or something like that. But at any rate, I knew it wasn't. I, I just didn't feel like, again, I had this inner urgency, which I'm very thankful for. Uh, and so I called a friend and asked her, like, what you doing? Do you want to take me to Kaiser? She was like, sure, I'll come over. So it was still very casual at this point. Our friend I, Caroline. Our friend Caroline, yep. who gave her full credit. Who you've known for decades now. Yeah, yep. yeah, well, since college. Yep. Uh, and she only lives like a mile away from me. So um, she, was, she was close. I knew she was home, or I hoped she was home. I knew she had the day off. So um, I called her and... Uh, and then um, I called Eric back again to tell him that Caroline was taking me to the hospital. And I was still anxious and so anxious that I didn't want to hang out in my house and wait for her to park and come to the house. So I, especially because we live on a hill and there's a staircase, I walked outside and sat at the bottom of the staircase waiting for her to pull up. And all the time I was on the phone with Eric 
And while we were talking, and Eric was still trying to reassure me that nothing was very bad, my left leg started to go numb. And, and I remember saying, honey, this is not good. It started feeling like it was going to sleep. It felt just like it was going to sleep. It was tingling in the toes and a little heavy. And it got worse and it got worse and it got worse. Um, and it was the longest wait for Caroline. She, I, it couldn't have taken her that long to get so over we here. We live on a hill. At that point, had you shuffled down to the... Yeah, like I just said, I, I came down and I was sitting right. at the bottom of the stairs mm-hmm. waiting for Caroline. And that was a very lucky thing because by the time she arrived, I could not use that leg anymore. And that was very, it was very awkward. Um, it, was, it was like I had no connection to it. It was completely dead. And... Uh, so I could barely walk. You know, I didn't have a cane or anything handy. And um, she got out of the car and she was like, oh, my God, what's going on? Because I was trying to stagger towards her and she put her, her, her shoulder under my arm and, and kind of got me to her passenger seat. If I had been upstairs, if I had waited for her in her living room, I don't know that we could have gotten down the stairs. Do you think you would have tried to drive yourself there if you, if you had, had had the a car, car Probably I wasn't here? I probably would have. So there, there's, of course, I don't can editorialize at this point. There's another lesson here, which is if you have an emergency, don't try to drive yourself. Don't have your friend drive you <laughs> to the emergency room. Call 911, <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. And we could maybe talk. There's a lot of lessons in this, and I think we'll hit those lessons later. We'll but repeat that one later. I but- certainly should have because what was going on was much more serious than I could have guessed at the time. And... Caroline could have pulled up to find me in many different states of distress or even dead. I was very lucky that it was only my leg that was numb. I could have had a stroke. I could have been having internal bleeding. I I could have just been dead on the stairs. So it was not fair to her to, to, to put that burden on her, nor on a Lyft driver or something like that, which was another thing I thought of. Um, yeah, the calling the ambulance is the right thing to do, though I know there's a lot of intimidation around that, financial intimidation, fear of making a fuss, um, that kind of stuff. The correct call uh, at that moment was was uh, to call nine one one, and I had kind of on the way to the to Kaiser with my friend. I I had sort of wished at that time. I started wishing that I wasn't an ambulance because there, we were in Friday afternoon rush hour traffic, and it was. It's only two miles, I think, to the Kaiser from our house, and it seemed to take forever. We spent so much time at lights, so much time to this one turn lane forever, and the whole time my leg feels so weird. So now the pain in the chest isn't hurting at all anymore. My chest feels fine, but I'm completely obsessed with my leg because this. I'm like, am I having a stroke? I don't know what this is. The There was a lot of pain at the point where circulation stopped in my leg, which was like at my groin, um, like just right there in the crease of the thigh, it was screaming because it was like my leg was saying, oh my God, oh my God, something's really bad happening. Fix this, fix this, fix this, fix this. And so, you know, that pain pain really working as an alarm to say something was wrong. Um, And so I was just writhing in the passenger seat going, oh, my leg hurts. Um, and so we finally got to the emergency room um, as we pulled up at the curb and uh, and there was a bunch of wheelchairs laying around. And I, I told Caroline, I'm like, get a wheelchair, get a wheelchair. So she got a wheelchair and I jumped into it and um, no, jumped into it, <laughs> I 
clambered into it with her help. And she pushed me into the emergency room. And I just went up to the desk and said, I am having chest pain. My leg is numb. Like I wanted to be seen that second. And, and bless them, they took me in that second. I was scared of emergency room delays. Because uh, at that point, I knew it was so urgent. Um, and they took me in and started to diagnose me. And at that point, did a doctor come to you immediately? Yeah, I think so. That's a little blurry. There was a lot of people swirling around. You know, they started sticking, um, you know, EKG things on me and um, uh, starting to run preliminary tests. I think a, I think a kind of a generalist doctor came in and asked me about my symptoms. I said, chest pain, burning sensation up my carotids. Now my leg is numb. And then my first round of doctors seemed to be neurologists. They were convinced I was having a stroke. And so they kept coming in, different people coming in saying, can you smile? Can you lift both your eyebrows? And I was like, I'm not having a stroke. <laughs> but they, I think I didn't fit. I, yeah, I'm relatively young. I don't have high blood pressure. So um, I didn't fit the criteria for what I actually had at first glance. And they were looking for other causes. So they they wheeled me off to get a CT scan on my head. And it came back clear. I, had not, I was not having a stroke. Mystery continues, sincere young neuro neuro people coming and staring at me and asking me questions. I even had like a TV conference with a very important neurosurgeon at one point, um, but they uh, they couldn't quite figure it out. Eric was on his way to me at that. I was time. driving, thinking it was just a bronchitis episode, and that I was going to come pick you up. You know, after you after, got discharged. Yeah. Yep. Um, but you had a long drive. So while all this was going on, I was in there um, talking to neurosurgeons. And then they they came up, when they decided it wasn't a stroke, they came up with this, this idea that I was having a bleed in my pelvis and it was causing the circulation to my leg to be cut off. They had ruled out heart attack at this point, right? I guess, I don't know. Yeah, I it guess never so. came up, I don't It think. never really came and up. And to be clear, it was not a heart attack. It was not a heart attack, no. Um so uh, uh, they took me back for another CT scan, uh, and I'd been there for, I don't know, I was losing track of time, at least an hour by that point. And I was much, I could feel myself physically decaying. I, I, I was pretty um, spunky when I first came into the emergency room. By the time I went in for my second CT scan, I couldn't like, really help myself on and off the platform the way I had the, for my first CT scan. And I was beginning to shake, and I didn't know if it was adrenaline or what. I was very trem I was trembling. I felt awful. And they stuck me into the CT again, and they were CTing my pelvis and to look for sites of bleeding. And this is my theory. This is not necessarily what happened, but this is how I perceived it. You know, I'm alone in the CT room. They're all in the booth. The CT ends. They start to, the, the automated little uh, thing kind of pulls me out of the CT donut. And I hear them in the booth say, you know, they, oh, they came, uh, the people came into the room to help me off my platform. And they said, put her back down, put her back down. They wanted to take another scan right away. And I think at that point, what they had seen in the base of my pelvis is, was my problem. Um, it was a split in my aorta. And I think they saw the bottom of the split 
in my lower aorta, which goes all the way down into the pelvis. I think someone had spotted it in the booth. And so they stuck me back in and they did a chest scan and then things got real serious real fast. And that's when I was diagnosed with an aortic dissection. They, they scanned me and they carefully lifted me onto a gurney to go back to my room in the ER. And they were like, don't move. Could you, could you try to hold as still as possible? And they rushed me back to my room in the ER and they called the cardiology team. And shortly thereafter, the cardiology team showed up in my room with very grim faces, and they started to explain what I had. And at that point... What, what, what did you have? Yeah, what is the aortic, aortic dissection. dissection. Yep. So, I mean, to me, it was a little bit like Charlie Brown teachers talking at that point. I knew, basically what I knew was that something very serious was going on. They were going to operate on me, and that was really all there was to it. It wasn't like I, <laughs> it mattered to me whether I understood or not at that point. Or I, I just like looked at these men, and they were all men, and, and I was like, "Yeah, my life is in your hands. Do what you want, because that's where we are right now." I, but um, in uh, to be clear about what this is, we looked up a definition online from the Mayo Clinic, just so we can read this to you because I don't know that we can explain it very well. Um, Mayo Clinic says, an aortic dissection is a serious condition in which the inner layer of the aorta, the large blood vessel branching off the heart, tears. Blood surges through the tear, causing the inner and middle layers of the aorta to separate or dissect. If the blood-filled channel ruptures through the outside aortic wall, aortic dissection is often fatal. So, you know, the aorta is, um, is, a, is a very big vein. It looks like a shepherd's crook, and it starts up uh, at the top of your heart um, and hooks around it, and then it goes all the way down into your pelvis, this big, big hose-like vein. And I like to think of it as a hose. And if you imagine a hose with a lining, and you imagine that the lining of the hose comes loose, and then you try to force water through the hose... Imagine how that lining will create false channels and pockets and obstructions um, to the water. So that's what's happening um, in the aorta with your blood. So your blood is not going where it needs to go. Um, it's not going uh, where it needs to go in sufficient quantities. And because the blood is now between the layers of the aorta, the aorta has three layers, uh, three walls. It's a three-walled structure. Um, but now the blood is like down to the first wall, which is more delicate, therefore, because the aorta is built to survive pressure. That's why it's three walls, triple walls, like a, like a tire. Um, if you only have one wall between the blood pressure and, a punk, and, a, and a, uh, an aneurysm, essentially, the, the wall is too thin to, to resist the pressure of the blood, and then you can have like to use the tire analogy, a blowout, and then you have an aneurysm, and then you have bleeding, free bleeding into the body, which is pretty fatal. So there's all sorts of bad things that can go on. In my case, it was cutting off circulation to my leg. That's why my leg was numb. Um, and in retrospect, that's a really good outcome. It could have been my brain that was not getting circulation. So it was good. It was all, you know, I had a good aortic dissection, all things considered, but I did have a complete aortic dissection, meaning that I tore from the top to the bottom. Often it's just a little tear here or there. I actually managed to do a complete rip. 
Uh, and I also even ripped up a little into my carotids as well. Uh, so I'm thoroughly torn open. Uh, but we'll go back to the story. Um, at that time, I, I was just like, you know, I, 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 they, you know I, I was parroting the term aortic dissection. I'd never heard of that before. I didn't know what that meant, but it was obviously very serious. The surgeon said, this is the most serious surgery we do. They, you know, they said I wouldn't maybe not make it through the surgery. Uh, they said... By this I, time, I had gotten there, I think, and, and Dr. Jones. I think... I remember Caroline took Dr. Jones outside and asked for it again so she could tell you more clearly. So I think the first time they talked to us, you were not there yet. Oh, okay. Um, but then you arrived shortly thereafter, and then they talked to us again, I believe. It's all getting a little blurry for me at this point. Um, but they they were saying sort of scary things. Like I began to understand that I was going to have my chest cut open. Uh, oh, they, they open were, heart surgery. It was, that it was open heart surgery. Right. And they described they a little bit of that, but my the inside yeah. of my head was kind of going la, 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 and not really wanting the details, even though I think they were giving me the details. They, you know, they want you to have informed consent. So they had to explain what they were doing, what the risks were. I had to sign something that said I understood that. But the whole time I was just like, la, 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 just get it done, just get it done, because um, I, I was so miserable and I knew there was no choice about what was going to happen. So yeah, Eric finally showed up, and he was looking. At that point, it was all very grim because Eric looked ashen. The well, priest, what, the what, what happened was your, I got there shortly thereafter. Dr. Jones, who was later to do the surgery and save your life, uh, pulled me aside and, and told me just how serious it was, mm. and he didn't mince words. I mean, he said, this is, like you said, the most serious thing that we can do here and they started prepping he told me they were going to prep the room for emergency yeah. open heart surgery immediately and i i just i i mean i freaked out and caroline had to grab me mm. i mean it was a tariff i mean and then i saw you you were ashen at that point you know your complexion you, you looked very sick mm -hmm. so that's where we were at. Yeah, it was bad. So the so the um, surgeons were grim. Eric was grim. The well, we, we, nurse later, that we, we later found out the emergency room staff didn't think you were going to make it. Yes, and to that point, the nurse um, who had been with me the whole time uh, said to me, and she, you know, her eyes looked kind of shiny, <laughs> like she was going to cry. She said to me, "Honey, I've worked here for a long time, and." I've seen a lot, and, well, y you need to call your family. And so I was like, oh. <laughs> so um, I had Eric dial my mother and my stepmother and my brother, and I called all of them. And these are difficult calls to make. Yep. Um, my stepmother, in a f her former life, was a cardiac nurse, so she knew exactly what I was saying when I said uh, aortic dissection type A, which is the worst of the two, type B is, if you're going to have one, have a B. Um, and she and she just knew how serious it was. So both my stepmom and my mom um, got on planes to come out. Uh, I couldn't get a hold of my brother, had to leave him a message, talk about awkward. Oh, I want to go have surgery. Thinking. Uh, that was very awkward. So 
Um, but there wasn't much time. They were prepping the room as quickly as they could. And I was getting weaker all the time. And uh, what, what else did we... Uh, we were, I was doing last... I began to think about this as, you know... I. It's odd to be in a life-threatening situation because there's a part of you that will never believe that you're going to die. It's and just, you're fully conscious still, so that's the other thing about yeah, this. I'm fully conscious, yeah. and it's and 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 death is still an abstraction, no matter how close it is. I, I suspect that even as you walk to like the execution grounds, you're still like, eh, it might not happen. <laughs> it's very, it's a very hard thing to deal with. At the same time, I could feel physically that I was in an untenable position. I was so, I cannot describe how badly my leg hurt. Um, I wanted to writhe with the pain, but I had to hold still so I wouldn't kill myself. And of course, they couldn't offer me anything for that. I was shaking all over at that point and sort of hallucinating. I, I, I felt very exposed, very weak. And I knew that something had to change. And, and I did get a little stoical at that point. And I was like, okay, in the next hour or so, I am either going to get better or I am going to die. And both of those are better than being where I am now. And I was pretty clear about that. I'm not, I'm not looking forward to death. And I don't have any real clear picture of what death is, except that I don't think that this is the end. And because of that, I'm not really afraid of death, but all things considered, I would rather be here. I was very aware of my um, my attachments here and the things I want to do still uh, and my responsibilities, and I didn't want to leave those behind. So uh, I went in just not knowing what was going to happen, but kind of ready ready to um, take what happened. The um, uh, As they were um, pushing me to the um, to the operating room. Finally, um, a young woman and a slightly older man came running beside me, and she introduced herself as a student nurse, and he was her mentor. And she wanted to have permission to watch my surgery, and I thought that was kind of funny for some reason. I was like, "Really, you want to see this?" And she's like, "It would be a great privilege." And um, I was like, "All right." And I actually had to sign something on the fly, <laughs> laying on my back there on the gurney, um, saying that she could come in and watch. And uh, and I was very aware that that might be my last decision, like the last time I could say yay or nay to something. And. Um, and actually, I saw her later on, which was, was really neat. Um, we were in the emergency room. It's a long story, but nothing important. And she was there, and she, and she and her mentor came up to me, and and I said, oh, the surgery must have, it must have been very dramatic, very gory, you know, to see. And she said, oh, no, it was beautiful. It was like a dance. Everybody was so graceful and knew exactly what they were doing. She said it was, it was, again, it was a privilege to see, and it was a beautiful thing to see, which makes me feel better um, about what happened, because what happened is pretty brutal, oh. not that I was there for it. What else happened before you went uh, down the hallway to the emergency room? Oh, also, we had called in our priest. Uh, Eric and I are Episcopalians, and I, I thought about clergy uh, because I had had experience with clergy with my own father's death. My my father died untimely young at the age of fifty five, after a protracted hospital stay, and at that time, um, 
he was also Episcopalian, and their their priest was just Mary Moore. She was just invaluable to us for seeing us through a terrible, terrible time, and also helping us with all of the just the bureaucracy of death and thinking about that and realizing that I might die, I said to Eric, call the priest, you know, because I wanted someone to be there with him. Caroline was there, but more people would be better. And also, also to have somebody who understood what to do if I didn't make it through. So I was very grateful that Father Mark could come out and he got there very fast. Of course, he lives in our neighborhood, but I think the white collar gets you like right through security. He just was like in my room instantly. It was amazing. And also something that um, really pleased me as a, as a goth girl at heart <laughs> was, that, was that he um, anointed me. So, which is called extreme unction, right? Or is that only called I so. extreme? I don't know if yeah. they call it that anymore, but from like the old books and old novels, um, you know, it's when you get the last blessing, um, you get oil on your head. <laughs> There's something very rock and roll in God about extreme unction. I was actually delighted. I, I really was like, there in my extremis, I was like, yes, extreme unction. I couldn't believe that I was actually getting it. <laughs> what a treat in this day and age. Who gets that? Nobody. You know, you, you, I thought you have to be in a four-poster bed with, with um, all the servants standing around to get extreme unction, but nope, I got it. So that was nice. And um, he actually got to walk... Eric and the priest were the only ones who were allowed to follow my gurney into the operating room. So they were running behind me, I suppose, when I was having that discussion with the student nurse. Um, we left you at the door. At the door of the operating room? Yep. Yeah. And, and um, we went into the operating room, and it was, it was surprising. I had a TV operating room in my head. My expectation was like a kind of a open clean room with a big table in the center with lots of lights around it. But instead, to my sort of deranged brain at the time, it just looked like it was full of junk. There was so much stuff in there, both machinery and also boxes of things all stacked up against the walls. I'm not saying that it was dirty or unkempt. It's just like I think they needed a lot of stuff and it wasn't a very big room and it was just full of stuff. I couldn't even tell where I was supposed to lay, but they knew and they, they scooched me onto um, a table. And immediately I was just jumped on by, I felt like 15 people. Like there was someone on every limb at my head, at my chest. Someone was doing something to some part of my body fast. I was just swamped with people. And at that point I was just surrendering everything. I, there was no more control. That, that's one of the lessons of this is that you think you're in control of your life, but you're really not. And and I just felt surrender at that point. I was like, you guys got me. And then... Um, it was about, I think, 9 p.m. at this point? It was point? about 9. 9.30, yeah. something like that. So this was 6, 7, 8, I don't know, 2, 3 hours after you came in the emergency room. They, they worked very rapidly yes. to make this happen. Yes. And the last thing I remember... Um, before I, they didn't do, they also didn't do the classic, like put something over my face and tell me to count or anything. They were just all working on me. But for themselves, they, they seemed to have some sort of accountability uh, structure where um, people were stopping to say who they were, what their role was, 
and what they were doing there, um, what what they were accountable for. And it reminded me very much of countless um, group discussions and classes I've taken where before the class starts, the instructor says, before we start, I want to go around the class and have you all tell us, you know, why you're here and what you expect to get from the class. Tell us a little about yourself. And, you know, uh, and <laughs> it's a little faster than that, though, right? <laughs> but I'm all but that's those. I always dread those moments. I'm so horrible. I'm, so, I'm like such a misanthrope. I'm like, I don't want to know about you people. I want to start the class because there's always somebody that goes on forever and tells you their whole life story. You're like, oh, and, and it, it made me kind of smile laying there you know, realizing that they were going to do that. And I was like, really? They're going to do this? Because it seemed like there were so many people in there. Like, how do they have time to do all this? But I, I just, I heard two of them do their accountability statements. And then I was just no more. I don't remember getting dizzy. I don't remember. I was just gone. And, um, and then things get pretty blurry. I was not actually in surgery very long, all things considered. Considering what it was. Considering it, how bad it could have been a much longer be. surgery. You yes. were there until, I think, about midnight or 1 a.m., something like that. And then they had to clean things up and get you into the cardiac uh, ward. But I, I was in the waiting room with uh, Caroline and Father Mark for a couple hours there. Mm. And... Uh, I, I had to make some phone calls too, but they both, I, I have to thank them both for being with me and in a very, very difficult time. Mm -hmm. So, and you had to, Father Mark left eventually. And yeah, he left later and then, and then Caroline stuck with me. And you guys went and had the most depressing dinner ever? At the 24 hour subway on Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then we had, I had to call your mom and, and your stepmom again, which was what not, yes, to tell them just that there to was... tell them that what was whether we didn't know what was going on actually, and then later on, but finally the doctor Jones walked down the hallway and told me that you made it, you know that you weren't out of the woods yet, but that you know he thought he had fixed it. What time was that? I think that was one or two in the morning, and um, and then. Your, I, I don't know if this is the point to thank Kaiser because they were really professional and every, everyone was just amazing, yes. but you had your own personal nurse who kept coming in to check on me, which I thought was very nice to make sure I was okay. Uh, but she didn't, they were still waiting for you basically. And then she stayed with you the whole night. I went, I went in the room and tried to sleep on the little pull out thing next to you but once I finally got into the room with you it was about two in the morning or no no sorry it was later than that Caroline stayed until about three I think and then they got you in a room and I got in the room with you at about 4 a.m I think that was it That's and then you were surrounded by uh, so dozens of bags and machines and you had your own nurse who was there monitoring you and didn't for a second leave it was, you know, she was very serious, uh, very professional. Uh, all the nurses. I mean, this is a point to say that they were just. Yeah, I, I don't remember that first nurse, of course. Um, right. Because I was out. But everybody was was amazing throughout the experience. So I'm very grateful. Yeah, you had your own private room throughout the whole. You were in the hospital for a week after. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, And I'm a little fuzzy in the head about like the first couple of days. I really can't remember. Like it's funny. Like you, the I have very sharp recall of everything up to the time of the surgery. And then after I wake up, it's super fuzzy. And I just suppose that's because of the tremendous cocktail drugs in my blood and the trauma. I don't remember, like, seeing my mom or my stepmom for the first I don't remember seeing Eric. Like, you know, those kind of hospital, you know, soap opera things where they're holding your hand and you open your eyes at last. I don't, I don't remember anything. I remember, hey, I was, um, is the word intubated? I had a breathing tube down my throat. Uh, my first memory is waking up and feeling that in my throat and thinking I was choking and fighting against it. But then they knocked me out again. And then my second memory is of them taking it out of me, which felt great. Uh, and then I think they knocked me out again or I passed out again. And then I then I just don't remember much. I don't remember my nurses. I don't remember my family around me very much um, for a couple of days before I started really coming back to myself. Uh I think I was lucky because I could not really see what I looked like, uh, whereas they are looking at me and at the enormous array of machineries uh, that were... Uh, I had so many things. I, as I became more conscious, I started to realize what, you know, how, how much had been done. Um, you know, my I had the huge incision in my chest. Uh, I had uh, drainage tubes all over me. It was catheterized. I had... Um, multiple IVs on both arms. Both of my arms were black and blue to the elbow. Um, I had this huge uh, needle in my neck that had that connected to many ports so that if they needed to get um, drugs into my system, they could mainline me as quickly as possible. But it, I had this like plastic thing sticking out of the side of my neck and it was all taped on there and it was always kind of pulling every time I moved my neck. I had uh, I was wired for a pacemaker just in case I needed one. So all these pacemaker wires were coming out of me, and I, I cannot describe. And that's just what I could see sitting there. I couldn't see all the bags and machines behind me. And I think people would come in and and just be shocked by by the technology <laughs> that they could see. What should be said again about the nursing staff at Kaiser Sunset is we never had to ask for anything. They always anticipated everything. And we yeah. had, you know, your stepmom is a former nurse. So that's one of the reasons she came was she thought she could help and make sure that things happened as they should have. We, we ended up not, thankfully, not needing that because they were on everything. They were on top of the it. doctors too, of course. But. I guess maybe we should step back and say a little bit about what they did to me in the surgery so there's some sense of how... I mean, I don't know. I have actually actively avoided looking this up. Um, so this is just what I understand from conversations with the doctors. But just to give you a sense of the... There's a term that uh, my nurse stepmother uses, as she said, insult to the body, which I really like. It's, it's a, she was like, your surgery was a great insult to the body. I believe that's a medical term. Um, and it is. So they, uh, I kept thinking about myself as an animal all the way through. I was thinking of myself as a lobster uh, cracked open down the center. But they, because they put me on ice and they cracked open my center. So that I, I kept imagining myself as a lobster on ice. But they, they did... Um, they did have to get the blood out of my body. So it was sent off to a circulating machine, which I imagine as a, like a cherry Slurpee going around and around in, a, in there. And then um, the student nurse told me I wasn't 
entirely encased in ice. It was actually only my head that was encased in ice. Uh, and they opened me up, a long incision throughout the length of my sternum. So my sternum was, it was entirely open. And now it's, um, it's been uh, wired shut. And then the, the incision was, was sealed with super glue instead of stitches. So it's actually very small. And it, you know, it's a big scar, but it's, it's mild looking compared to my childhood memories of, of um, older men with earlier surgeries, like, you know, the older heart, um, heart attack victims whose chests afterwards, after the open heart surgeries, you know, looked very, they had huge scars on their chests. Uh, my chest is very feminine and um, delicate compared to that. But um, I, as I understand it, what Dr. Jones said when he came out was that they had basically, he had basically fixed the upper part of the tear yeah. and that that had kind of taken care of the rest of it in terms of your circulation. And also they had he was concerned that he might have to replace a valve, which they yes. ended up not having to do. Mm -hmm. And there were some other things that they thought they might have to do, but they didn't. Right. But as I understand it, he fixed the upper part of the tear and you started working again, basically. Yes. Yeah. So at the upper part, we mean like the shepherd's crook of the aorta that wraps around the heart. Near the, the important heart. part is the part up by the heart, the important part, quote unquote. Um, and so he shored up that section, that little curve right above the heart. And once that was fixed, it was kind of like fixing the top of the hose by the water faucet. And, and then when the blood goes down, the rest of it, even though it's still torn, it's sort of self-correcting and it's still working. Also, once they got that circulation reestablished, my leg came back to life on its own. They thought they might have to do surgery on the leg, um, and they had actually already cut open my right leg because they were going to take tissue out of my right leg and put it in my left leg and make it work, but they uh, didn't need to do that. And so um, that was good too. So the leg came back on its own. So everything, I was very lucky um, apparently often they get into, you know, once they open you up and they see what's going on, sometimes the damage is, is just gone too far. Uh, so many people die of this and I was just lucky in so many ways, you know, to, to have come in, um, of my own will, uh, to have, uh, been diagnosed, you know, pretty quickly to have excellent surgeons, um, and to, and to have just happened to have, the situation in my body was was re repairable. It 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 fixed it. You know, once once they got in there and did what they knew what to do, it it got better. So that's that is good. Um, they are keeping a close eye on things like the the valves that they were a little worried about. There, that's uh, for future. Um, but it seems like I'm doing pretty well. We'll talk more about like future prognosis later. But this is what killed Alan Thick. Uh, John Ritter came in with this and was misdiagnosed, I think, as a heart attack or something. And subsequently, then he has a there's a found foundation in his name that, that has, I think, helped emergency room staffs recognize this condition. This is a, a relatively rare condition, uh, and it all, usually strikes men in their 60s and 70s um, with hypertension. It's, hypertension is the biggest indicator that this is going to happen to you because the constant the pressure of high blood pressure on the walls of your aorta is what can cause tearing. Uh, but it does happen to younger people sometimes. John Ritter wasn't very old when he, uh, he wasn't 60 or 70. He was young when that happened. Um, two weeks after... So, hold on. Credit should go to the emergency room staff for quickly diagnosing it. Yes. And acting. Yes. 
Um, two weeks after my thing, Alan Thicke died of this very thing. The actor, he was uh, the star of, uh, was that Full House? I never watched it, but the newspapers were full of obituaries for him. And then it turned out that it was this. Um, and I don't know the details of his situation, if it wasn't diagnosed right away or if he didn't go in. But this is something that happens a lot with with aortic dissections, is that um, th- they're often not treated quickly enough because sometimes it, it takes different forms, but the pain that I felt was weird and extreme, but it was passing. So it happened and then it went away and it left me just sort of standing there going, what was, what was that? Oh, <laughs> I should say, I forgot to say when we were in the emergency room, I had to confess that I was peeing while this happened, which is very funny. <laughs> I was, um, later the, the and then later Dr. the surgeon Jones, was yucking up was, about it. He was it. a wonderful, wonderful yeah. man with a great bedside manner, but yeah, he, he thought that was funny. He was know. like, ah, ha, ha. I, everybody thinks it's hilarious. But I remember talking to some sincere young doctor and he was asking me to re- go over my story again when they were trying to diagnose me. And he's and, he, and I and I said he's like, well, what were you doing when you felt the pain? I was like, um, I was squatting. And he's like, oh, okay, so you're in a squatting position and you feel the sharp pain in your chest. I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and he's like, what were you doing while you were squatting? And I was like, well, I was gardening. <laughs> and he's like, so were you? Um, pulling on something or lift, trying to lift something. You know, he was like, he was not going to let this go. And so I was like, oh, I say, all right, all right. I was, I was peeing. I was peeing in my garden. And he was like, oh, oh. <laughs> and I, don't know, I think the squatting has become a little bit of a joke amongst my care team at this point. Um, I, but I think it's, it's kind of funny. If, if I was going to keel over dead doing anything, squatting in the garden would be, very apropos for my life and and something I would stand by. I'm like, that's okay. That's that's an okay way to die. Well, so But the, I wanted to go back to yeah. the so I could have easily if I had not had the secondary symptom of my leg going numb, which happened about ten minutes after my initial pain, I could have decided to ignore that. I could have been like, Well that was weird. I'll call my doctor and set up an appointment or you know, if I didn't um, have insurance, I would have just ignored it because it went away. But the problem, is, of course, is that it doesn't go away. You've got damage inside you, which is now beginning to um, wreak havoc in your body. So I guess if there's a takeaway for the listener, if you feel sharp, stabbing pain in your chest, back, or neck, and it's sharp. It's not like indigestion. It's it it feels like somebody shot an arrow into you or something like that. Pay attention to that and get seen. Well, actually, you you can also say even if you you feel mild symptoms of that of those things because it could also be a heart attack. Yes. And so you should take it seriously, whether it's mild or sharp. Yes. And just call nine one one. I've had a lot of people come up to me now and tell me their stories of survival. And a lot of a lot of these stories are around people who don't, you know, want to go to the hospital, don't think they need to go to the hospital, but somehow miraculously do, uh, because sometimes they, you know, heart attacks they, they take strange forms. I was talking to a fellow who had a heart attack, and it didn't 
feel like the classic classic pattern heart attack to him. He just was really, really tired and he was kind of sweaty. He thought he was coming down with something and just thank, and he just went to bed early, but thankfully he had a friend staying with him and his friend was like, you know, why are you in bed so early? Why do you look so bad? I think you should go to the doctor. And, and they finally, he finally forced him to go to the emergency room and he was having a heart attack. So yes, pay attention to your symptoms. I had a non-threatening kidney stone evening of incredible pain that lasted from 10 to 5 in the morning before we finally went in. You were being stubborn as a mule. It's like, I don't want to go in. I don't want to go in. Finally go in. <laughs> and the doctor says, I'll go get the morphine right away. He runs off. He goes to get it. And then the pain stops. But then you when had he gets, passed the stone. I had passed it. But then he gets back and he says to me, why did you wait? You should not wait. That's what we're here for. Just come in. <laughs> I think they they don't care about a false alarm. Uh, no. They, what they care about is you not coming in. So please, <laughs> everyone listening to this, you have any strange symptoms, and especially women who have apparently more subtle symptoms of heart attack, you need to pay attention to that. Yes. As far as worrying that you might have ever have what I have, it's highly unlikely. Um, it does... It does mostly affect um, older men with a history of hypertension. The younger people who get it um, are um, often genetically predisposed to it. I'm having genetic tests now. I probably do not have genetic predisposition for it because I don't have anybody in my family who has died of this. Or we don't know. That we don't know. As far as I know, going back as far as we go, which is not very far, I don't have, but I don't have any, like if you have a grandfather who died of this, then you're going to be at higher risk of this. Um, sometimes it happens via accidents like trauma to the chest, car accidents, that kind of thing can set this off. Um, also a disturbingly pregnancy, pregnant women um, have this sometimes, not to scare anybody who's pregnant because I'm mean, worried about enough things. It's very unlikely. But generally, younger people and women are less likely to have this. The fact that I had it seems to be just sort of a lightning bolt. It, I could have a genetic predisposition that they have not yet identified. Um, like I said, I have had genetic work done. My blood is off in a lab somewhere now. And in three or four weeks, the results should come back. The geneticist said that there's an 80% chance they're not going to find anything at all. He says in most of his, his work with aortic dissection survivors like me, they just don't ever know exactly why this happened. But he said they're, but we're building, like, I will add data points to to their collection and they might someday figure out a pattern um, or a cause that we don't recognize yet. So my genetic test, even if it doesn't come up with anything now, may help later. There's a 20% chance that they might show some um, some genetic predisposition to this. Um, from there's a there's kind of a host of of very um, rare conditions that it could come out of. So um, if that's the case, I will be um, more prone to future occurrences. So I'm hoping that that is not the case. So there's a big um, risk factor. A big genetic risk factor is a um, sin is a genetic condition called Marfan syndrome, which I've already been cleared of. But it's something to know if you um, are are tall and lanky. Um, it's it's uh, 
uh, it is a condition that leads to having weak connective tissue, and this is why the, your aorta is more likely to give way. Um, Marfan's is a very specific sort of physical type, but Eric and I could start, could kind of pass at a glance for Marfan's. You, you're tall people with long gangly limbs, but there's very specific traits to Marfan's that I learned in my examination with the geneticist. Um, they have very um, flexible um, wrists and hands, like they can bend their fingers way back and their wrists way back. Their fingers are very long. I thought I had long fingers. The geneticist was like, oh, those aren't long at all compared to what a Marfan's person, you'd have very long fingers. Uh, you uh, might have flat feet. Um, you might have a chest that either tends towards being a pigeon chest or a sunken chest. There's all sorts of, uh, they have like a whole scale of things that they test you on for Marfan's, but they can do it with just like a physical exam. Um, people with Marfan's have to be very careful on a number of fronts. So if you're, um, you probably already know you have Marfan's, but if you're tall and lanky, you might want to check into it. Um, we have just a few minutes left. So do you want to talk about some of the lessons that we've already talked about some of them? Like for instance, don't avoid the emergency room. Uh, take an ambulance instead of have a friend. Apparently, it's common with this condition that a friend drives you it's in. It's easy not to take it seriously at the not start. not a good idea. Yeah. And it's, and it's very unfortunate because I know, you know, a lot of people have, don't have health insurance or have inadequate health insurance. And, and, I, you know, a trip to the emergency room is an expensive proposition, and that makes me sad, you know, that people have to make those kinds of decisions. I'm very glad we have managed care that we have. We're under uh, Kaiser, which is an HMO, which is managed care. We, we had just two small co-payments, but total, if we had not had that, the bill was $189,000. Yes, and $189,000. And if we had had a traditional insurance plan where we had to pay 30% of that, that'd be like, what, it's like $56,000. Like a lot of money. I don't know how we would pay that. Um, instead, we paid $3,000 in co-payments, which we're very glad to do. Yep. So, yeah, right now we're very much, yay, managed care, yay. Um, but, you know, you know, universal health care would be better. Single payer would be better. Uh, but we should not have to worry about this. I know not all of our listeners live in the U.S. and they live in other countries that have better health systems, you know, and they are probably not afraid to go to the emergency room. All I can say to us benighted Americans is go to the emergency room. Your life is worth a lot. You know, even if you come out with a hefty bill and you've struggled to pay it, it better that than dead. And that, that that's a sad thing to say, but that's all I can say is that you know, you've got to do it. And then this is for a lesson for me. Don't second guess people in a health crisis, just like I was doing. I, I could have, uh, if, if you had followed my advice, you wouldn't be with us, basically. Yeah, but you're too hard on yourself about that. No, I mean, it's it true. was, it's natural to try to comfort somebody when they're, you know, frightened. I, I don't know. Well, it's, it was a, it was a big mistake. So well, I don't think it was that big. Any other lessons? There's Spir so many lessons. Spiritual lessons? Question mark. Oh gosh. Uh, was there a white light? <laughs> was there? The, I did not see a white light. I kind of hoped I would. At, you know, by the time I was being rolled down the hall, and I felt so miserable. I'm like, well, maybe I'll see a white light. But I, did, if I saw one, I don't remember. Like whatever they did to me in there, that knocked me. It just knocked me out. I was gone. I mean, maybe I did all sorts of things while I was gone, but I don't remember anything. Um, 
what I learned about was really about the physical plane. Uh, you know, um, I've learned a lot about surrender. I've learned a lot about the illusion that I am in control of things. It's just not true. Um, and maybe the most important spiritual lesson I've learned is, is about other people and how reliant I am on other people and, and how this web of kindness can exist between us and does exist between us in ways that I think we forget. We get, sometimes we become cynical or self-enclosed or we retreat from the world, but the world is full of, of wonderful people, you know, who are full of love, strangers, uh, people I barely know. I, I'm so thankful for the for the kindnesses I have received during this. Um, and as somebody who tends to be more reclusive, it's a very good lesson, you know, to remember that people are good, and and this world is good, you know. And I need to be here on this world and not be worried about what's going on on the other side with the white light, but you know, stay here and appreciate the goodness that's between all of us. Um, on that note, let's again thank Dr. Jones. The <laughs> and the whole surgery, there was a huge surgical their, team. Their surgical team. I just don't the know their names. Everyone there at Kaiser was nice from security guards to, you know, checkout clerk. Every Everybody was very, very nice and compassionate. You, one, one does develop a greater sense of compassion in crisis, which, as you just noted, unfortunately kind of wears off and the cynicism creeps back it in. It is but, easy. But, you know, I think we can work to cultivate that compassion, um, cultivate compassion for other people who are, um, who are sick, people uh, who, like, I have a sharper eye for people who are suffering now than I think I did before. I'm also so grateful for all the people who, who prayed for me, sent me cards and emails, brought us food, offered help. It was, it was amazing, the outpouring. And, and some of the help came from such unexpected sources. Um, people, people we don't see very often. Yeah, people we hardly see, you know, brought us brought food, casserole. Buy, just, it yeah. was just... It was amazing. Um, and I was I spent a lot of time just crying with gratitude. It was one of my uh, recovery hobbies um, to think of people who I, I hardly even know uh, doing so much for me. It was yeah. really amazing. Um, other uh, lessons. Um, well, I, I've. One lesson which I've learned, but which I actually have to confess we haven't enacted yet, is that we do need to plan for death. We need, you know, no matter how old we are. Um, and, I mean, Eric and I have a little bit done that way, but not as much as we need to. Things like wills, durable powers of attorney, advanced directives. You, know, you, you all hear these words and you groan and you don't want to do it. And I don't want to do it. But there I was, you know, watching the crown, and then all of a sudden, I'm almost dead, and I could have died, and Eric would have been left figuring everything out himself. So we really need to um, tie up all this stuff with a bow. I want all of this stuff done so we know exactly. I mean, I've, I've blogged about, like, how I don't want to be buried, but what would have happened if I had died? What, and I don't really want to be cremated either, because I think that's like a big waste of energy. And so... But Eric, in you know, in his grief, like what what would he have done? So I need to, if I have specific, um, you know, desires about my burial or whatever I'm going to do with myself, I've got to figure that out in advance and at least have 
have it written down, even if, if I don't have, if I, you know, I might not have prepaid for something, but I could at least have information for like, you know, I want to be buried at sea and here's some companies that do that or whatever. So I need to do that. Um, also, and this is, <laughs> this is fits with our previous podcasts, decluttering. Like now, you know, I've always kind of thought of decluttering as like, well, what if you died and people came into your house? What would you want them to see? Now that's become very real. That's very real. Um, you know. Well, it's part of realizing what's important and what's not important in life. Yes. In the end, right? Yes. And also just like things can kind of pile up, you know, in the corners and the dark cupboards of our lives that we just ignore. And it feels good to... um clean that out, you know, so I, I'm death, I want to be death ready. I want to have, you know, I want to have only things, the things I have in the house, I want to be mostly things that are of value, things that people would be like, oh, I would love to have that. Not like, what is this weird thing? What's this piece of junk? What's this piece of trash? You know, I want our house just to have not many things, but all the things that we have are, are good things. Um, and not that many of them. And, you know, same with the clothes, you know, I, I want people just to be able to like sweep a few clothes out of my closet, put them in a bag and that is it. I don't want craziness anymore. And now I'm very, very determined to do that. Um, I've had a hard time. I've been decluttering a little bit in my convalescence, but I can't do much yet. So I'm a little frustrated about that. But yeah, I think we should all be death ready. That's my, that's a big depressing lesson but a very real lesson well a hopeful lesson in yeah. a way i mean you know yeah um also um if you or a loved one goes through something like this like a major surgery open heart surgery for whatever reason um it's a surprising process it, it's worthwhile, like if you are a loved one of somebody going through this kind of stuff, I think it might be worth reading up on it. I I didn't really want to read anything about what had happened to me because it just kind of creeped me out. And so I, I was happy enough just to zone out. Um, but there's a lot that goes on emotionally and physically after a major surgery that I think is helpful to know about. Um, fear and depression there's a lot of serious stuff, which I've now learned and months later is actually extremely common. Like I was afraid at, I would get afraid at night as the sun went down, I would start to get depressed. And by the time it was time for bed and in the early days, right after the surgery bed, quote unquote, was a recliner for me. And the rec Eric would move the recliner into our bedroom. So it was next to the bed so he could hear me and attend my every need. And I sh and speaking of gratitude, I should thank Eric, who um, has been my constant companion and manslave since this happened. Uh, he's been wonderful. He has been uh, just doing everything in the house, doing, of course, all the cooking and the cleaning and, and tending my every need, um, building weird furniture for me, um, uh, running out and buying me depressing medical devices at my whim, going, uh, standing in line to get my refills. I don't know how I could have done it without him. So I want to thank Eric for all of his support. Um, but one of those things was like, um, always being nervous for me. So of course, um, we wanted, he wanted to be in the same room with me so I could call for help. And 
he would move every night he would move the recliner out of the living room back into the bedroom I spent all my time for the first few weeks in the recliner uh, it was the only thing that was comfortable uh, so a recliner is a good thing to have in a health crisis <laughs> uh, but the I he would go to sleep and I would stay awake. Um, we would set up a little side table that had like an electric candle on, like a nightlight, because I didn't like to be in the complete dark. And I had, um, I had some things that, uh, beautiful things that I like to meditate on, on the table that would keep me um, quiet and maybe some meds if I needed pain meds in the night. And I would sit there and I'd have these long, long nights just being sleepless, partially because I think your system's just screwed up. Uh, there's so many drugs uh, swirling around your veins, um, but also being afraid. Um, uh, have this, uh, you know, I'd have these conversations with myself, knowing that I was technically okay. They would not have let me out of the hospital if I was about to die. But you lose trust in your body after something like this, and so I would be afraid to fall asleep. I wouldn't be able to let go enough to fall asleep. And so I would nod off and I would jerk awake again. And I would imagine that I had stopped breathing, which I think was not true. I found out this is very, very common for heart surgery um, patients, like this fear of not breathing while you're asleep. And it goes, it goes to a lack of trust in your body. And also like a fear, it's a fear, you know, we, we think we're invincible and something like this happens and you realize you're not invincible at all. And that's a lot to absorb. Um, and something like aortic dissection is particularly strange because, because it comes out of the blue. And if, if I could just be struck down out of the blue like that, um, on, on Black Friday, why couldn't it happen again? Like you, so you have no surety anymore. You can, cause you can construct these narratives for yourself. Like, well, if I eat right and exercise and my blood pressure is low, well, then nothing's going to happen to me. Well, that's just not true stuff happens. So, uh, it's, it's a, it sets you back. It sets you back on your heels a lot. And I think it's something you should be aware of, you know, anybody going through this paranoia all around. Um, uh, so I, I also kind of go through things where I would think anytime I felt something weird, like why, why are my fingers tingling? Why does this hurt? Why does that hurt? Well, I think my, I think my breathing is shallow. All these little things would send me into just I, I'd be like on the verge. I did not actually go to the emergency room for any little things, but I came close to going to the emergency room for little things. And maybe you should go to the emergency room for little things, as we've just said. But I was always sort of trying to gauge um, what was anxiety or not important because the, the doctors told me what to look out for. Mostly what I'm looking out for is sharp stabbing pains like I had the first time. It would mean it's happening again. Other than that, incidental fleeting things that that don't stay long, that aren't powerful, like, um, you know, like tingling fingers or a slight pain in my side or, or whatever. These things, if they are, are, are really not important. Uh, and it took me a long time to get over that. And of course, a lot of that also is anxiety. So anxiety makes you feel bad. And then you get more anxious because you feel bad and you go into these anxiety cycles. So that's something to be aware of. Um, 
also, I, my my mom stayed with me and um, a little bit afterwards, and Eric, of course, was here. And I remember I'd be sitting in my recliner, and they'd be sitting on the couch and just staring at me all the time because they were sure I was just going to keel over any moment. And then every and I would, you know, if I winced or something, they'd be like, "What? What? <laughs> What's going on?" <laughs> so everybody is paranoid that you're just going to drop dead, not just you. That's and that's not actually reassuring. Um, I crying jags. I had a lot of crying jags. And some of them I think are good. I cry often out of gratitude uh, because of the kindness and beauty. Um, I also became very sentimental. I found that I could not watch Call the Midwife at all because <laughs> that's a movie. You know, there's a lot of childbirth in that, in, in that series. And, I, <laughs> and somehow... Being born has just, you know, I, I, I just, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's what, I mean, that series is about that to some extent, but I could not control myself. I would be weeping uncontrollably during, I had, we had to take Call the Midwife away from me because I could not deal with it anymore, the miracle of birth. Um, but then also some of the crying was darker. Sometimes it was just frustration, depression. Uh, I felt like a lot like a toddler, like a frustrated toddler often. A lot of that has gone away. I'm still prone to beauty crying, but not so much to frustration crying, so I'm getting better. But so, yeah, if you meet someone who's been sick and they just start crying when you tell them that you're really glad to see them so well and they just burst into tears, don't be afraid of that. They're not crazy. That's just what happens. Uh, anything else? I think that's uh, I think that's good. We're at um, we're over an hour now, so we probably need to wrap it up. I just yeah. want to thank again Caroline, Father Mark, <laughs> your mom, um, Nancy, and Paula, your stepmom, uh, for being with me the during the very difficult. I think time. You, in some and ways, many many other people, but the, that was sort of the the core group there in the hospital with me. I, I think in some that. ways you guys had a harder time than I did. You know, I mean, well, it was difficult to see you in so much pain, but um, uh, on the other hand, I, I, you handled the situation much better than I would have. I would have been pretty freaked out in the emergency room, I think. Mm -hmm. So you're much more, I don't know. You're, you're, I tend to get pretty calm in crisis. You were very calm considering what was going on. It's a, it's a part of my repressed personality that I'm very, <laughs> I'm very good at that. But yeah, it was so scary. For yeah. sure. But, oh, I guess we haven't said about future. I don't know uh, long-term prognosis. I'm probably fine, stitched up and good to go. As weird as this is, I may be basically set to live a normal life from now on. We're going to keep our eyes on, it depends on these genetic tests that come back. Um, I'm going to be scanned a lot, especially for the next few years, to make sure nothing else is a brewing, you know, that I don't, because my walls, the walls of my aorta are weak now, technically, so I'm at a higher risk for aneurysm. So they want to keep a, a close check on that. And I have apparently a, a valve or two that are kind of dodgy, then they're going to be looking at those as well. Those, if they, if they see something weird, um, they might have to do another surgery on me. But I trust that I'll get through that surgery too, though I really don't want to have another surgery. Um, but the likelihood of me just dropping dead is, is not really there. Um, the longer I do well, the less likely I am to have any future problems. The fact that I've lived almost three months past the event at this point is actually a really, really good sign that I'm not going to have any other problems. I, I guess it usually happens sooner. Um, 
I'm obviously a little little skittish still about going very far away from an emergency room. Like I love traveling and I love camping. And I was a little depressed early on thinking I might never do those things again because that's a part of the kind of uh, psychosis after surgery when you're just down. Um, I'm realizing now that that's not true. My cardiologist has cleared me right now. She's like, you can go camping right now. You could take an international flight right now. I am personally not mentally there yet because I don't like the idea of being hours away from the emergency room. But I think I will get there eventually. Um, It might take a year or so for me to uh, regain the confidence in my body. Uh, And also I want these tests and stuff to come back and make sure. Uh, But um, officially I'm good to go. Eric has a phrase he uses. He says, you're stitched up and good to go. Um, so I can do any, I, apparently I'm ready to go. I, I need to do some physical therapy, but I'm sort of on my own for that. Um, uh, I've just weakened from like almost three months of non-activity. Uh, but I'm clear to, you know, walk, hike, take exercise classes. I can't do anything that puts a lot of pressure on my chest. Like power lifting is off the, off the list. Oh, well. Oh, well. Um, But I'm also going to widen that to interpret that to things that I don't like doing, like push-ups and plank. (laughs) Those seem like they put pressure on the chest, so I'm not going to do those. Um, So there's the the bright side of this. Uh, But yeah, I'm going to start building up strength. Uh, I need to rebuild strength in my back and my arms. I can really, I, I get um, overtired very easily when I try to do things like sort, uh, sort or clutter. Um, I, I get surprisingly um, tired, tired out very quickly, and I get really bad back pain. So I need to just do some physical therapy of my own devising to get stronger, and I should be good. In terms of getting back to blogging, I'm looking forward to doing that soon. I have been muddle-headed, I'd say, since since this happened. I do have trouble concentrating at this point. I get better in every way every day, and my mental fogginess is lifting to some extent. But right now, I do have trouble concentrating. I, I, I um, used to be able to read very dense things, old literature, um, scientific reports, whatever, effortlessly. And now it's actually hard for me to read things more than a paragraph long because my attention span has just gone. Uh, And my attention to detail, I used to be excellent at editing things, but now that's gone because I don't have the, I guess, the attention span to do the fine work of editing. So I don't think that this is a permanent condition, but it is something I've got to get over. I think I might have to train up my brain the same way I'm training up my body bit by bit. Um, to get to a point where I can um, be more helpful on the blog um, or think about writing or involve things like books and stuff. So I, what is my way of saying, I know I've been off the blog for a while uh, and I'm going to um, start making steps to coming back to the blog and thank you for your patience and waiting for me to come back. Thank you, Eric, for writing all the blog posts. All right. My pleasure. <laughs> and uh, lastly, uh, thank you again to Eric Rochow for doing a podcast for us and stepping in. Eric suggested that if you want to do something for Kelly, you should uh, consider donating some blood. And I think that's, that's a really nice idea. That's a really good idea. My stepmom says she, she wouldn't be surprised if I had a complete transfusion during the process. Right. So donate some blood and also go to Eric Rochow's 
website and YouTube channel and subscribe and leave a nice review for them. I appreciate that. Um, all right, so to leave a question for the Root Simple Podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. You can have our podcast automatically downloaded for free by subscribing in the iTunes store or on Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, please share this podcast in social media. You can support the Root Simple Podcast through our Patreon campaign or through a one-time PayPal donation. You can find those links on the right side of our blog, which is rootsimple.com. You can also purchase one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. So uh, thank you, everyone. Goodbye. Goodbye. All right. And our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. Thank you.